Chapter Six, Part Two of American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. American Men of Mind by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Six: The Stage, Part Two. When Edwin Forrest, heartbroken and discredited, died in 1872, he left his manuscript plays to another great tragedian whom he regarded as his legitimate successor john mccullough in some respects mccullough was a greater actor than forrest for he possessed that quality of poetic insight and high imagination which forrest lacked while in physical equipment for the great characters of tragedy he was in no whit his inferior john mccullough was born in colrain ireland in eighteen thirty seven his parents who were small farmers, bringing him to this country at the age of sixteen. They settled at Philadelphia, and the boy was apprenticed to a chairmaker, but he soon broke away from that humdrum employment, and, in 1855, appeared in a minor part in The Bell's Stratagem. His story after that was the usual one of long years of training in various stock companies he gradually worked his way into prominence and finally in eighteen sixty six became associated with edwin forrest taking the second parts in the latter's plays and after forrest's death taking his place as the first impersonator of robust tragedy in america for ten years his success was tremendous then came the sad ending McCullough had always been supremely great in characters requiring the delineation of madness, Virginius, King Lear, Othello. Whether this had anything to do with the final tragedy cannot be said, but in 1884, while playing at Chicago, he broke down in the midst of a performance and had to be led from the stage. His mind was gone. He never rallied, and ended his days in an asylum for the insane. One of the most successful engagements McCullough ever had was in 1869, and for some years thereafter, when, with Lawrence Barrett, he appeared at the Bush Street Theater in San Francisco, Barrett's name is also closely associated with that of Edwin Booth, for he played opposite Booth through many seasons. Othello to Booth's Iago, Cassius to Booth's Brutus, and so on, and the two formed a combination which for sheer genius has never been surpassed but barrett never commanded the adoration of the public as booth did because he lacked that power of enchantment which booth possessed in a supreme degree his mind was austere he could win respect but not affection and as a result criticism was more captious honors came grudgingly or not at all and the fight for recognition was uphill all the way lawrence barrett was born in eighteen thirty eight and he began his theatrical career at the age of fifteen after the usual hard stock company experience he secured a new york engagement where for nearly two years he supported such actors as charlotte cushman and edwin booth from new york he went to boston for a similar engagement but at the outbreak of the civil war he left the stage accepted a captaincy in the twenty eighth massachusetts infantry and served through the war with distinction then he returned to the theatre gaining an ever-increasing reputation until his death clara morris called him the man with the hungry eyes and they were hungry for life was always a battle to him 
from an obscure and humble position, without fortune, friends, or favoring circumstances, he had fought his way upward in the face of indifference, disparagement, and cold dislike. Clara Morris has told the story of her own life better than anyone else could tell it, and has shown in doing it the very qualities which made most for her success, a wide sympathy, an impetuous heart, and an invincible optimism. She, too, had a hard struggle at the first, entering the ballet at the age of fifteen to help her mother after her father's death, and working her way up until she secured a New York engagement with Augustin Daly's famous stock company, where she soon was sharing the honors with Ada Rian. Ill health shortened her acting career, and compelled her retirement from the stage when at the very height of her powers. Just the other day, there died in California another woman who won a great public a generation ago by a genius and charm seldom equaled. Helena Mojeska's story was an unusual one. Born in Krakow, Poland in 1844, the daughter of a great musician, her early years were passed in an aspiring atmosphere, and almost from the first she felt an impulse toward the stage but her family refused to permit her to become an actress and it was not until after her marriage that her chance came her husband consented to a few trial appearances and her success was so great that she was soon engaged as leading lady for the theatre at krakow but her husband incurred the ill-will of the authorities by his political writings and she herself got into trouble with them by resisting the russian censorship of the polish theatre it was evident that arrest and banishment for either or both of them might come at any moment and under his incessant and increasing worry her health began to fail so she renounced the theatre as she thought forever came to america purchased a ranch in california and settled down to spend the remainder of her life in quiet but edwin booth john mccullough and others encouraged her to study english and appear upon the american stage she did so, and four months later appeared at San Francisco as Adrian Lecouvreur. She had an instant success, and for more than thirty years maintained her position as one of the greatest actresses of the day. Her personal fascination was of an exceedingly rare kind. Her figure tall and graceful, her face wonderfully attractive in its intellectual charm and eloquent mobility. Shakespeare was her chief delight, and as Juliet, Rosalind, and Ophelia, she enchanted thousands. On the evening of Thursday, November 25, 1875, an audience assembled at one of the theaters of Louisville, Kentucky, to witness the first appearance upon any stage of a young lady of Louisville. The young lady in question had chosen as her vehicle Shakespeare's Juliet, which was certainly beginning at the top. She was only sixteen years of age, and had never received any practical stage training. Her experience of life was narrow and provincial, and yet, when the curtain rang down for the last time, the discerning ones in that audience knew that, despite the crudity of the performance, a new star had arisen, and a great career begun. For that young lady of Louisville was Mary Anderson. Her story is unique in the history of the American stage. Born in California in 1859, but taken to Louisville a year later, her father, Charles Joseph Anderson, dying in 1863, an officer in the Confederate Army, Mary Anderson was reared by her mother in the Roman Catholic faith, and received her education in a parochial school at Louisville. 
She left school before she was fourteen, and two years later, as we have seen, was upon the stage. Her first appearance won her an engagement at Louisville, and for thirteen years thereafter she was an actress, never in a stock company, but always a star. Then, at the very meridian of her career, she married and retired forever from the stage. Mary Anderson's charm was not that of a great actress, for a great actress she never became. She had not the training necessary to finished and rounded work. Her charm was rather that of a sweet and gracious personality, of a beautiful nature and a high sincerity. Sumptuously beautiful, and possessed of a clear and resonant voice, such statuesque characters as Galatea and Hermione attracted her irresistibly, and in these she achieved her greatest triumphs. Scarcely second to her was Ada Rian, born a year later, appearing on the stage two years earlier, in other words, at the age of thirteen. Ada Rian, appropriately enough, was born at Limerick, Ireland, and the roguish and perverse Irish spirit was ever uppermost in her acting. She was brought to America when she was five years old, and lived and went to school in Brooklyn. Two of her elder sisters were upon the stage, but she does not seem to have indicated any special desire to imitate them, and her first appearance was by accident. An actress playing a small part in Across the Continent was taken suddenly ill and the child who happened to be at the theatre was hastily dressed for it and taught her few lines but she displayed so much readiness and natural talent that at a family council which followed the performance it was decided that she should proceed with a stage career and she was soon regularly embarked this meant a long and severe course of training in the stock companies maintained at the various theatres throughout the country to support such wandering stars as booth and mccullough and barrett and adelaide nielsen and she emerged from this training well grounded in all the business of the actress in eighteen seventy nine she attracted augustin daly's attention and from that time forward until daly's death she was the leading woman at his famous new york house becoming one of the most admired figures upon the stage her art luminous and sparkling especially fitted her for high comedy and it was there that she achieved her greatest distinction ada rian's name was closely associated for many years with that of john drew also a member of the daily company and a son of the famous mr and mrs john drew two of the most versatile charming and popular members of the old school the elder john drew was born in ireland in eighteen twenty five but came to america at the age of twenty and spent the remainder of his life here except for a few absences on tour he was considered the best irish comedian on the american stage his wife born in london in eighteen twenty of a theatrical family appeared in child's parts at the age of eight came to this country at the age of twenty and made a great success here in high comedy parts their son can scarcely be said to have fulfilled the promise of his early years but seems to be content with an achievement which shows him to be an accomplished and finished but by no means inspired or imaginative actor another family as celebrated in american theatrical annals as that of john drew was e l davenport's davenport himself had received his training in the old stock companies and notably as junius brutus booth's support in a number of plays he was equally at home in tragedy and comedy associated with him after their marriage in eighteen forty nine was his wife fanny elizabeth vining an actress of considerable ability 
No less than six of their children followed the stage as a career. The most famous of them was Fanny Davenport, whose stage career began when she was a mere baby. Her young girlhood was occupied with soubrette parts, but she soon developed unusual emotional powers and attracted Augustine Daly's notice. He added her to his stock company in 1869, and she soon won a notable success in such parts as Lady Gay Spanker, Lady Teasel, and Rosalind. Perhaps no American actor ever had a more remarkable career than William Warren. Born in 1812, the son of a player of considerable reputation, his first appearance was at the age of twenty. For twelve years, his history was that of most other struggling actors, but in 1846 he became connected with the Howard Athenaeum at Boston, where he remained for thirty-five years, retiring permanently from the stage in 1882. During his career, he had given 13,345 performances and had appeared in 577 characters, a record which has probably never been approached. He was especially notable in his representations of the fine old English gentleman, and he became to Boston a sort of conservatory of acting in himself. That he was appreciated both as man and artist, his long residence in Boston proves he was a cousin of one of the best-loved actors who ever trod the american stage joseph jefferson but their careers were very different for jefferson in the last quarter century of his life confined himself to a few parts practically to four bob acres rip van winkle dr pangloss and cable plumber in these he was inimitable Something is gained and lost, of course, by either of these methods. One is inclined to think the wiser plan that making for the greatest achievement is a wide diversity of parts and constant creation of new ones. And yet, when one looks back upon Jefferson's delicate and cameo-clear impersonations, one would not have him different. Joseph Jefferson was the third of his name to challenge American theater-goers. His grandfather, born in England in 1774, came to America 23 years later and spent the remainder of his life here, gaining some reputation as a comedian. His father is said to have had little ability and to have been careless and improvident. The third of the name was born in Philadelphia in 1829 and began his stage career at the age of three, appearing as a child in Pizarro, which must have frightened him nearly to death. His father died when he was only fourteen, and the lad joined a company of strolling players who made their way through Texas, and during the war with Mexico followed the American army into Mexican territory. American drama was in no great demand, so at Matamoros, Jefferson opened a stall for the sale of coffee and other refreshments, making enough money to get back to the United States. For the next ten years, he appeared in stock companies in the larger eastern cities, meeting such players as Edwin Forrest, James E. Murdoch, and Edwin Adams. But the one who influenced him most was his own half-brother, Charles Burke, an unusually accomplished serial comic. William Warren also ranked high in his affections. The turning point of his career came in 1857, when he became associated with Laura Keene at her theater in New York. Here, his first part was one with which he was afterwards so closely identified, that of Dr. Pangloss, and then came Our American Cousin, in which he gained a notable success as Asa Trenchard. 
and in which Edward A. Southern laid the foundation of the fantastic character of Lord Dundreary, which was to make him famous. A year later, he created another of his great characters, Caleb Plummer, in The Cricket on the Hearth, and soon afterwards the most famous of all, Rip Van Winkle, which remained to the end his supreme impersonation. After that time, his career was a golden and happy one. He won the affection of the American public, as perhaps no recent player has ever done. His art had a peculiarly wide appeal, because it was fine and sweet. He won sympathy and inspired affection, and seemed the very embodiment of the tender, artless, and lovable characters it was his joy to represent. Jefferson's death marked the passing of the last of the old school, that mellow, fluent, and accomplished circle of players who seemed so different to their successors. But public taste is different, too. We care no longer for the rantings and heroics of Virginius and Spartacus, and all the rest of those toga-clothed gentlemen who differed from each other only in their names. We demand something more subtle, more, yes, let us say it, intellectual. The modern who came nearest to answering this demand, to showing us the complex thing which we know human nature to be, was Richard Mansfield, a great artist whom, no difficulty appalled, he gave the American public, season after season, the most significant procession of worthy dramas that one man ever produced. Mansfield was born in Heligoland in 1857, and studied for the East Indian Civil Service but came to boston and opened a studio studied art and then suddenly abandoned it for the stage curiously enough he began with small parts in comic opera and a few years later made one of the funniest cocos who ever appeared in the mikado but he soon changed to straight drama and the first great success of his career was as baron chevriol in a parisian romance a part which was given him after other actors had refused to take it, and in which he created a real sensation. His reputation was secure after that, and grew steadily until the swift and complete collapse from overwork, which ended his life at the age of 51. Are there any great players alive in America today? E. H. Southern, perhaps, comes nearest to greatness and has at least won respectful attention by a sincerity and earnestness which have accomplished much he is the son of edward askew southern whose career was a most peculiar one intended for the ministry he chose the stage instead apparently with no talent for it and for six or seven years only the most unimportant of minor parts were entrusted to him one of these was that of lord dundreary in our american cousin it consisted of only a few lines and southern accepted it under protest but he made such a hit in it that it was amplified and became the principal part of the play in fact the play became in the end a series of monologues for dundreary it had some remarkable runs one for instance in london for four hundred and ninety-six consecutive nights southern continued playing the part until his death his son is undoubtedly a far greater actor and may achieve a high and lasting fame associated with him in many of his later and more ambitious productions has been julia marlowe undoubtedly the most finished and accomplished actress in america she had a thorough training having been on the stage since her twelfth year and devoting herself closely to the study of her art her sincerity too promises much for the future 
After Southern, Otis Skinner is perhaps the most noteworthy, and after him, well, any one of a dozen whom it is needless to name here. It was Joseph Jefferson who remarked that all the good actors are dead. He meant, of course, that the present seems always of little worth when compared with the past, and this is the case not only with the theater, but in some degree with all the arts. It is especially true of the theater, however, because the player lives only in the memories of those who saw him, and memory sees things, as it were, through a golden glow. End of chapter 6, part 2 Recording by William Tomko.